Wholesome. Wholesome. Bro, wholesome. Whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> what, dude, what? We're about to start. I thought you said we we're starting, but you're just staring off into space or something. Well, I'm sorry that you're jealous. I'm part astronaut. I'm going to take a controversial hot take here and uh, suggest that just because you stare off into space, you may not be an astronaut. Nah, potato Apollo. It's just, I've been stuck inside. (laughs) It's just that I've been stuck inside for so long, man. We can't go anywhere, and the only way to really travel is in Monoghan. Ah, it's so true. The continent hopping that we were so famous for last season has become somewhat less doable now. And it wasn't any less cruel that the movie you had us watch this week was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, The Beautiful Vistas, The Unforgiving Cruelty of the Mountains and Nature. Heck, planes. Airports even sound nice. Hey, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Theme song first, then desperate longing for travel. Fine. Don't be Aristotle by your Plato knowledge, cause we got our game I like. Will Vinny Vitty Vici and Mustachio Nietzsche And we'll never miss the marks Cause I'm awesome, he's heathen And this is our podcast show Welcome back to the show that talks philosophy Through films people actually enjoy Heathen over here will talk the philosophy concepts And Wholesome will give it an approachable spin Through the lens of pop culture Today, we've got a film that in other times Would be inspiring But in a period of lockdown, kind of just feels like torture. (laughs) The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Ah, such a good film. Written and directed by Ben Stiller, I might add. Uh, Say what you will about Ben Stiller, dude has range as a director. This film is nothing like Cable Guy, which is nothing like Tropic Thunder, which is only kind of like Zoolander. Hey, true, true. This film tosses out the whole screwball comedy for a quirky indie adventure film, and personally, I think he knocks it out of the park. Even better, while his other films may be chock full of commentary, this one steps its toes into philosophy, and that's what I'm excited to explore today. Ooh, is it the philosophy of travel? Is, is that a thing? You know, one wouldn't be at fault to think there would be plenty of philosophy of travel, but... Many of the most famous philosophers didn't have too much to say about it, or were too poor to do it, one of the two. (laughs) I guess it was a lot harder, you know, before trains, planes, and automobiles. Anyway, uh, you want to get us started on the rundown of the film? (laughs) Be my pleasure. Uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty stars Ben Stiller as the eponymous Walter Mitty. Did I say that word right? Eponymous? Eponymous? Eponymous, I think? Eponymous sounds right. With the hippopotamus Walter Mitty. The film begins... (laughs) (laughs) With Walter spending an accurate-to-real-life amount of time debating whether to send a wink to the girl he likes, Cheryl, on eHarmony. He tries, it doesn't go through, he gets frustrated, and he goes to work. 21st century problems. Straight up. After some really cool establishing shots that emphasize symmetry, like it's a Wes Anderson film, Walter is waiting for his subway train and calling the eHarmony guy about the error his profile is having. This is when things get interesting. Walter hears a fire alarm going off in the building next to the subway. In a moment of heroic action, he leaps off the platform, through a window, and into the building to rescue a small puppy just before the building explodes. (laughs) And Cheryl, the girl from eHarmony, comes running through the crowd, 
thanking him for rescuing her dog. Walter then whips out a, like a small prosthetic he made <laughs> for the three-legged dog, and he, he made it on the way down while he was rescuing him and uh, gives it to her as yeah. she fawns over him. Oh, man. Yeah, that was golden. Um, yeah, and then right then... Good recap? No, it's spot on, spot on. <laughs> right then, Walter Mitty is rudely reawakened from his daydreaming by the sound of the train he was meant to catch leaving without him. <laughs> and see, that there is the core part of the film, or a core part of the film, I should say. Walter's tendency to have intense daydreams about a more exciting life. In reality, he works at Life Magazine, and as he arrives at work, we discover pretty quickly that the magazine has been acquired, and the company will shift to online content exclusively. The bearded man heading up the merger is a doo-doo head, pardon my language, <laughs> making fun of Walter and calling him Major Tom for his zoning out spells. For now, what we need to know is Walter works as a negative assets manager at Life Magazine. An incredibly famous photographer, Sean O'Connell, sends Walter Mitty a wallet with the Life magazine logo and a film strip for Walter to process, with photo number 25 being the quintessence of life. Negative 25 is the only photo missing from the role, however. With his job being threatened by the merger, Walter has to use clues from the other negative to find Sean O'Connell to ask him just where the heck photo 25 is. I gotta say, quintessence of life is such a... <laughs> Douchey? Can I say douchey? <laughs> title? But, but with the help of Cheryl, this starts Walter on a quest to find said douchey photo 25. That, I'll, I'll give it to him. It's supposed to be the greatest thing. So it sets him on this round-the-world quest from Greenland to Iceland to Afghanistan. And on his travels, the ridiculous things he used to daydream become almost overshadowed by the amazing things that actually end up happening on his adventures. He, uh, I think he punches a shark at one point. Right in the face. <laughs> he outruns a volcano eruption. And when I say outrun, I should say he longboards away like such a cool <laughs> dude. Um, he meets some warlords. He hikes up and down snowy Himalayan mountains. All the while, his eHarmony customer service rep... Uh, keeps calling him so he can update his profile. <laughs> and this dude is just blown away by all the adventures that this once boring man now finds himself on. I feel like we can get into most of the meat of this film without spilling where exactly Photo 25 turned out to be. And I'll give a disclaimer before we talk about what Photo 25 actually is. But this is a fantastic film, and if you haven't seen it, I recommend you give it a shot. It's not traditional Ben Stiller fare, and if nothing else, the visuals are absolutely awe-inspiring Ooh, perfect perfect good uh good segue i can always count on you wholesome to get me moving in the right direction did i uh did i say a good thing yeah you did little buddy <laughs> i figured we'd start off with a little discussion on awe and aestheticism and see where it goes from there oh i know aesthetics it's when stuff is pretty aesthetically appealing and whatnot uh what gives it the ism did it become a philosophy or religion? Kind of a philosophy. Aesthetics, I would say, is the philosophy of art hmm. or beauty and how we perceive it. it would, some people say it's one of the main branches. Hmm. It asks the same questions we ask about life, but kind of directs them at art. Why does certain art look beautiful? Why does a piece 
evoke the emotion it does. The artist Marcel Duchamp famously put a porcelain urinal on its side, and that ended up being a renowned art piece in the Dada movement that sold for nearly $2 million. Oh, my gosh. Why is something that stupid considered art? (laughs) There it is. I thought this sounded pretty out of your normal philosophical repertoire. Art is pretty much the furthest thing from objective, and you like you some big concepts. I do, I do. You're absolutely right there. I'm mostly going to bring up aestheticism to lead into two things I do think have some philosophical merit in regard to what pleases our eyeballs. Please phrase that any other way. I will not. First (laughs) off... (laughs) First off is the assertion by my beloved Immanuel Kant that beauty is objective and universal. Kant, I remember that guy. Haven't we talked about him with, um, what was it, epistemology? That's right, yep, yep, way back in, like, our fourth or something like that episode. That was the study of knowledge. So, as you can see, Kant just wants to understand why we think the way we think, in all the ways we think. Hmm. Even emotional and mushy ones like... Ugh, beauty. <laughs> you really just hate being happy, don't you? Untrue, but that's a that's a good point. We should do a episode on hedonism sometime. Not what I. It gets such a maligned rep, you know. Anyway, Immanuel Kant suggested that beauty and, by extension, art can be universal and objectively decided. Which, as much as I love objectivity. I'm going to admit seems seems kind of tough to do for art. Hmm. So Kant really took these two positions mostly as a way to reconcile other opposing beliefs on beauty. There's rationalist and empiricist. But this is all artsy-fartsy mambo-jambo. <laughs> so what I really want to get into is his second idea, and the one I think actually ties into the film. The idea of the sublime. I don't practice Santeria. I ain't got no crystal ball. Yeah, that's that's good, but uh, not quite that one. Mm. Oh, you you mean the idea of something so awe-inspiring that the simple act of looking at it makes us feel simultaneously small, large, and one at peace with the universe? Uh, I yes, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, that was very precise for someone who. Just started singing instead. Yeah, should have figured a modern ska song wouldn't have been on a playlist of philosophers from the 1700s. That one's on me. I do have to put a disclaimer here, and it's the same thing I've been saying for over a decade now. Don't say it. Ska sucks. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) Let's build off that definition of awe and the sublime that you so kindly provided us. What kind of things make you feel Oh, man, that's a big list. Uh, I hear the Grand Canyon does it. Um, Space Dudes, say, seeing the Earth from space does it. Uh, Yellow Card's entire discography seems to hit me roughly the same way. So, Mm. plenty of things. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I was going to call out Space Dudes, but then you said Yellow Card and I forgot all about it. (laughs) Regardless of whether or not individual pieces of art have merit, there does seem to be some pretty intense consensus that some things are just absolutely awe-inspiring. This feeling of sublimity 
seems to transcend cultures and creeds and hits us all with a similar feeling of beauty and wonder that individual and confined pieces of art usually don't. This movie scratches that itch all over the place. Whether they're showing us the cascading hills of small Icelandic villages, the rolling ocean during a sunset, or somehow making Ben Stiller actually look kind of rugged and hot, this movie is constantly showing us things that we may never have been able to see otherwise. You know, I, I definitely see it with the whole Ben Stiller rugged and attractive. Uh, yeah, we don't, have to, we don't have to get into it. This movie does, however, accomplish the impossible, so we agree on that. Mm-hmm. And then this begs the question, we feel awe. So what? What makes that different than seeing anything else beautiful? Like, my face. (laughs) Beauty and pain are closely linked. Um, Oh! (laughs) Got him! Ah, usually it's, it's big? Like, big and pretty. Yeah, that's... That's actually where I was going with this. Yeah, nice. Really? Pretty much. Immanuel Kant suggested that the beauty we find in the idea of the sublime is due to our own ability to reason. And he pulls this concept from stoic ideas. Say say you're at the edge of the Grand Canyon, or you're in a ship on a stormy sea surrounded by waves. Kant suggests that the feeling of sublimeness we get is not because we feel small, but because we recognize the power of our reason in being able to keep us from fear. Basically, that we're so smart and that we know better than to be scared by these overwhelming things. That seems pretty self-important. I wouldn't say that's what I'm feeling in those moments. Heck, most of the time I don't think fear is a major part of it. Great. Perfect. That's where I get to say something you know I love to talk about. Is it empirical data? Empirical data, Ah! yes! (laughs) In a study published in... What was it? Hang on. Frontiers of Neuroscience. Two neuroscientists conducted an experiment into this very same phenomenon of the sublime. This study, like a couple before it, determined that witnessing awe-inspiring things actually has the complete opposite effect of what Kant determined. Or, I guess, thought. He didn't really determine if he's wrong. Fair enough, yeah. (laughs) And while Kant is right that witnessing things of beauty typically trigger parts of the brain associated with uh, self-consciousness and reflection, awe-inspiring and sublime things trigger a different part of our brain entirely. The big things part? Yeah. Yeah, that. Uh, let's call it that. <laughs> so fMRI data shows that self-consciousness is deactivated when witnessing the sublime. Rather, it makes us feel like a small part of a bigger picture. Kind of like when you watch that um, the small blue dot clip of the legendary, legendary Carl Sagan. That video makes you feel big and inconsequential all at once. And if you haven't seen it, go Google small blue dot. Mm-hmm. Or if you're listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist extraordinaire, talk to us like, like we're stardust. So that when I look up at the night sky, and I know that, yes, we are 
part of this universe. We are in this universe. But perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. When I reflect on that fact, I look up. Many people feel small because they're small and the universe is big, but I feel big because my atoms came from those stars. Whoa, that is some big theme stuff right there. It's almost like some art can bring out the existentialist considerations that philosophers have toyed with, but without the associated crisis. <laughs> Dang, beauty can be pretty cool. Oh, that is something pretty cool that I want to bring up real quick. Kant was actually ahead of his peers in suggesting that there's a difference between beauty, as in traditional art, and the sublime. So he was kind of ahead of the game that way. And the neuroscience actually confirms that. And it's pretty cool. He maybe didn't get everything right, but I mean, he's still done good. <laughs> That's so cool when the internal reflection of these famous philosophers gets validated hundreds of years later. Gosh. I definitely felt some sublimity on our Columbia trip. I think you remember me staring at that one specific mountainscape for longer than was socially acceptable. I mean, only because we were on a timeline with other people. But <laughs> but I felt you, you know? When you're in awe, you just gotta let it wash over you. You gotta let it happen. Golly. Okay, cool, cool. So, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty shows us some pretty vistas, which is cool, but pretty visuals do not a deep movie make. What else does this film have to say? I mean, Walter Mitty worked for Life magazine, so they're definitely hinting at suggestions for what makes a fulfilling life, right? All right, all right. So the film had to show us the world is beautiful to make us want to live it. The other ingredient was having Walter escape his fantasy worlds and actually go to live the life he always fantasized about. He had to take some risks and suffer some cuts and bruises to get the, the weirdly attractive version we were talking about. Uh, and we're, it's almost like we're subjected to it. I didn't, I didn't consent to that, but. <laughs> right. So is that what the film boils down to? Nike's just do it thing? Go explore the world, you lazy couch bum, etc. I mean, that's part of it. And I think a lot of critics poo-pooed on the film as being nothing more than that, just Pretty, but one step away from having every character eat a cliff bar while climbing up a mountain. <laughs> I'd argue the film has a lot more to say than that, though. Oh, yes, I agree. May I? Please do. I was thinking a lot about what the messaging of this film was, and it involves one of my favorite pseudoscientific fields, color psychology. That's a made-up thing. In as much that everything is made up, sure. Ooh, you got me there. All right, all right. <laughs> I'll allow and, it. And, <laughs> thank you. And also in that it has confirmed basis and value, absolutely. But in the context of films, colors and their symbolism is valid, so I get to use it. Sprout forward, my little tadpole. Gross, but okay. So check this out. <laughs> At the beginning of the film, Walter Mitty is wearing a blue tie with a white shirt. Standard business attire. Mm -hmm. His style of dress heavily emphasizes blue, and when he's wearing blue, he's the zoning out, socially awkward dork that we know him to be from the trailers and stuff. After Walter's first big adventurous moment, his garb switches from primarily blue to primarily red almost instantaneously. This symbolizes his new adventurous persona and ties directly into the Life logo, which is primarily red as well. This change is even hinted with a fantastic Matrix reference, 
when Walter arrives in Greenland and is given the choice between two rental cars, red and blue, I'll take the red. That is the best. You know how much I love The Matrix. Like a little bit or something, yeah. Don't even kid. It's cinematic, philosophical, existential, epistemological perfection. (laughs) And I will not allow it to be treated any other way. As you say it, it shall be. But right, the reason I bring up the colors is because what I think they say about the theme of the film. Walter throughout the film is having crazy adventures, but they realistically cut back to his checkbook as he calculates the money he's spending and how much he has left, while continuing to answer calls about work and his aging mother's living situation back home. Some of these moments are played for laughs, but most of it is him facing the realism of accomplishing what Walter has had the freedom to accomplish and the limitations that life provides on those freedoms. Which is kind of funny, too, since life literally cuts him his paycheck. So, in a weird sense, (laughs) he can only do any of this because life cuts him the check. I hadn't even thought of that, but I love that. That's awesome. (laughs) But right, if red is the color of adventure for him and blue is the color of his old lifestyle, I I get stuck on why, at the end of the film, he wears an entirely blue outfit. Jeans, shirt, even undershirt are blue, just different shades. That's a lot of blue, and that has to be for some kind of point. Is that... Uh, just to signify that he's shifting into his old lifestyle. Then again, that seems like a, a lame shift in message, I guess, for someone who just had all of this adventure. Right, exactly. But but I noticed that the film never penalized Mitty for having a job at life. The, the problem wasn't that Walter had a job and contributed to a larger whole, but just that he never took the time to explore the world and take some time for himself. Heck, he only even traveled to begin with because he needed to for his job, and that travel was likely never going to happen otherwise. But you're right, and here's where the spoiler comes in for the film, so if for some reason you're still living in 2013 or pre that time, perhaps (laughs) skip maybe 30 seconds here if you haven't seen it yet, so I'll keep them vague. Uh, But if you want that blank state, go check out the film right now. But right at the end of the film, we find out that the final picture... The all-important photo number 25, Quintessence of Life, Mm. that is going to be the last cover of Life magazine, is Walter Mitty himself outside of the Life magazine building. And that the final print issue of Life is dedicated to those who made it. Then at the end of the film, when Walter finally finds photographer Sean O'Connell, Sean is watching a snow leopard. And the snow leopard is clearly hard to find since they're chilling here in ungoverned Afghanistan. (laughs) And Sean says of the snow leopard, beautiful things don't ask for attention. Which is a good line made much better by its application to Walter Mitty. The film isn't saying that Walter was some lame-o who was wasting his own life away doing boring stuff. What he did was vital towards this company, and if nothing else, made a huge impact in Sean's life, seeing as the only person Sean trusted with his negatives was Walter Mitty. And I think it's this scene, in conjunction with the final scene, that really sells the true theme of this film. He was walking with Cheryl, right? Mm -hmm. Was Cheryl wearing a red dress? Pretty much, yeah. Red and white. The colors of Life magazine, which Mm. could suggest she's his future life, for one thing, and some clever symbolism. Gross. But I think the film is really suggesting that by him wearing all blue and her wearing red, that both sides are necessary for a full life. Gain those life experiences, have adventure, 
but don't downplay the importance of your place in the grander scheme of things. Bam! Theming. Nice. <laughs> but in, here's where, of course, I'm, I need you, buddy, but does that tie into any specific philosophy? Well, I'll take us in two different directions here. The first thing we'll talk about is how Walter Mitty got to where he got to, and we'll look at that through the lens of pain. Hmm. Second, we'll discuss this concept of a quote-unquote full life, since that seems to be what the film's core theme is. Sheesh, we're going to talk about pain? That thing that gives me the ouchies? Oh yeah, that thing that gives you the ouchies. (laughs) Evolutionarily... Pain makes perfect sense in that it lets us know about harmful sensations and, by extension, stuff that could kill us. And for that, average everyday scientist, that's good enough. But we're philosophers, golly gosh darn it. Hey, hey, language. Sorry. But I do like where your head's at. You're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What does philosophy have to say about pain and suffering? For that, I'm going to pull out a famous quote. I don't have it written down, but it's something like... Nothing pained, nothing gained. You mean no pain, no gain? Hey, hey. Who's the philosopher here? It just sounds suspiciously wrong and not smart. Fine. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Oh, mustache guy. I know that one. Also known as Nietzsche. And don't you dare say... Gesundheit. Yeah. I'm sorry. We're we're just going to move past it. So, (laughs) Nietzsche lived quite a bit of his life in pain. He suffered intense migraines since he was a child and developed severe depression into adulthood. Toward the end of his life, he began to have debilitative cognitive decline and dementia and actually completely was not himself in the last almost like 10 years. Then he had a stroke and eventually he died of pneumonia. Ah, so this dude knew suffering. Yeah, and... If he was going to suffer through pain his entire life, you can bet your bottom Bitcoin he was going to convince himself (laughs) it was philosophically necessary and profound. (laughs) A quote. You have the choice. Either as little displeasure as possible, painlessness in brief, or as much displeasure as possible as the price for the growth of an abundance of subtle pleasures and joys that have rarely been relished yet. If you decide for the former, in desire to diminish and lower the level of human pain, you also have to diminish and lower the level of their capacity for joy. Hmm, I see what he's getting at. But I know how you feel about this topic. Something about broccoli, if I remember correctly. Yes, exactly. This is a personal yet enduringly correct heathen opinion. But whether or not I've tasted the grossness of broccoli makes baklava cheesecake no more or less tasty. Baklava cheesecake is delicious and quite possibly reason number like three or four for living. And that is regardless of my knowledge of that gross, gross broccoli. That was oddly specific, but, and I'm not the type to defend a Nietzsche position, so <laughs> look what you've done to me. That challenge, <laughs> challenges have the ability to strengthen us. It's like why we go to the gym. Yeah, exactly. Listeners, if you haven't seen us, please do understand that we're both horrendously jacked. Not a shirt we can put on that doesn't just tear apart. Exactly, and our muscles only got that way because they were 
broken down through repeated exercises and muscular abuse until those same muscles redeveloped stronger to compensate. Bam. So that's fair. Okay. I will not concede that pain helps us better appreciate pleasure, but I will agree that certain levels of pain can develop in growth. And I do believe that's what the movie hints at. Right. Walter gets some pretty cool scratches, burns, and scars towards the end of the movie, but these injuries just make him look rugged and cooler rather than a gross, whiny collection of ouches and bruises. <laughs> and these injuries aren't intentionally inflicted, but a natural part of living a more full life and that danger that comes with it. And that's a good place to segue into what is probably the core theme of this film, the idea of a fulfilling life. Ooh, sounds good to me. It looks like we've got some of the ingredients here, witnessing the sublime and seeing how we fit into the grander picture, enduring pain for the sake of growth, and exploring the world, maybe? Travel is cool and all that, and that makes a full life? I do personally think travel is healthy and vital, perhaps, towards making a more well-rounded individual, but don't take it from me. Take it from the man Mark Twain himself when he said... Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness, and many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Wow, that is a solid quote. Very high praise for travel. But it wouldn't be fun if I didn't take this great opportunity to bring up a counterpoint by another individual who also is slightly more well-respected than me. Only slightly. Good old Gandhi. <laughs> oh, snap. Gandhi didn't like travel? Almost hilariously. <laughs> he said, Is the world any better for quick instruments of locomotion? How do these instruments advance man's spiritual progress? Do they not, in the last resort, hamper it? Once we were satisfied with traveling a few miles an hour. Today, we want to negotiate hundreds of miles an hour. One day, we might desire to fly through space. What will be the result? Chaos. <laughs> Dang, Gandhi. That, uh, that feels a little extreme, dude. Asking what travel provides is a fine question, but answering your own question with chaos is uh, a little dramatic. <laughs> Drama Gandhi. <laughs> oh, I love it. love it. Been, I've been wanting to share that quote with the world. It's quite a beautiful thing. <laughs> and no disrespect to Gandhi, but it is pretty funny. Um, but right, travel looks on the surface like a major theme of this movie, but like you pointed out with the colors he wears throughout the movie, it's a bit more complex than that. Okay, so we're leaning more in the direction that a full and complete life has elements of both, exploratory and used to develop insight, but also contributing to the greater development of humanity as a whole. It, is that sounding right? I'm just kind of like pulling a straws here. Yes, yes, I love that. I think, I think that's where we're going here. Now, it's surprisingly tough to find a philosopher from Western philosophy, at least, that promotes a balance of ideas. A good philosopher combines many philosophical ideas to come to a conclusion that helps them live a more full life. A fun philosopher takes an extreme position so we can have fun arguing about how wrong or right it is years later. Uh, going to write that one down and use that forever and ever. <laughs> My pleasure. Back to the philosophy question at hand. 
we're looking for a philosophy that suggests that there's a balance between this exploratory lifestyle and one where one contributes to society outside of being a wandering hermit dude, right? Yeah, no, that's that's what I gather. That sounds good. Then we get to go back to my old pal, Aristotle. We're going to talk about the concept of the golden mean. Do unto others? That's the golden rule. Hmm. The golden mean is different. It's a little bit like the Taoist idea of balance, except that it actually takes a stance on certain virtues being right, whereas Taoists tend to view things as best when they're just all closer to the middle. Fair point, fair point. So what does the golden mean have for us? The most cited example is probably the most relevant for us here, and that's of courage as a virtue. Mm. The film suggests that Walter is a bit of a scaredy cat. Right. When his boss is trash-talking him, he only fantasizes about punching him in the face. He doesn't actually punch him in the face, which is a bit of a bummer. Yeah, exactly. That's what I usually advocate. (laughs) And even his daydream could have been viewed as a bad response to the problem since, I mean, even though I advocated, he'd probably lose his job by punching his boss in the face. Maybe. So... With the idea of the golden mean, courage is a virtue, but it's placed between recklessness, punching bosses in the face, (laughs) and cowardice, not standing up for yourself at all. Ooh, I like that. Mm. That's kind of like the crux of the film. Is Walter building his way out of his general, maybe cowardice is an extreme word, but maybe timidity? He's busting out of his timidity to live a more full life. What a fun word. I don't think you can have so much base behind that because it's more like timidity. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Yeah, that's that's a good understanding of it. Sure. So Aristotle also spent a lot of time in his day trying to examine the world around him. Now, versus the film, Aristotle was trying to figure out what comprises a world around us in a field known as natural philosophy. Oh, I see it. Nature, natural, philosophy. Seems like all the ingredients that make up the themes of Walter Mitty. Uh, If only it was such an easy and direct translation. Mostly his ideas of natural philosophy was to figure out how nature works the way it does. This is where your classical four elements come from. More of uh, earth, air, fire, and water. Until the Fire Nation attacks. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So, him and his philosopher buddies from that time period had some clever ideas, but with what we know now, they weren't quite right. That said, you don't examine nature without, you know, examining nature. (laughs) That exploratory element of Aristotle's philosophies can tie pretty nicely into Walter Mitty. Although Walter Mitty seems much less concerned with logic or solid reasoning, it's more like growth or something akin to self-actualization. It technically falls more into the field of psychology, but I always felt it had more play in the philosophy field personally, that that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply put, it's about finding the most full version of yourself, and that leads to a sense of fulfillment. And here's where maybe we combine all these disparate elements into philosophy for the film. Let's review the concepts we've hit on so far. All right, let's check out these notes. First, we've got aestheticism and the idea of the sublime. The film uses scope to suggest our smallness in the face of the vastness of the world. Check. Cool. Then we've got the no pain, no gain thing where we grow and develop through hardship. 
But broccoli still sucks no matter what you say, Nietzsche. <laughs> and then we've got Aristotle saying finding that middle ground of courage is a virtue. The middle point between recklessness and cowardice. Or cowardice. <laughs> Timidity. <clears throat> all right. And put all that together and it could lead us to the psychological concept of self-actualization. Basically becoming our best selves, which we could only do through the exploring and enduring of the world. Hey, that doesn't sound half bad. Feels like a thematically comprehensive film to me. Wow, hey, that was something. I need films to just go back to referencing philosophers by name. That's much easier than having to find associated themes. Less subtlety, Ben Stiller. Less subtlety. But it was fun getting to cover so much ground, and it's always the journey in the end, isn't it? <laughs> and you got to hear how Gandhi is a travel phobe, and I feel like that's worth the price of admission alone. I absolutely agree with you there, yes. <laughs> well, awesome. That was fun. Uh, got anything on the docket for us next time? You ask as if I'd ever reveal my master plan to you. I'm going to my daydream fantasy world where I can just punch you forever now. You know, I rescind my advocacy for punching now. <laughs> and we, we, anyway, we both know that your daydreams are much sweeter than that. Fine, so it's a tea party. I can't help being a sweetie pie. Well, <laughs> catch you next time. Wholesome and Heathen usually endorse things in an ironic fashion, but they agree that this Life Magazine motto is some pretty good life advice, so please prepare for an unusually earnest post-show endorsement. Here's the motto in its entirety. To see the world. Things dangerous to come to. To see behind walls. Draw closer. To find each other. And to feel. That is the purpose of life. Thanks as always for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time.